you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, Let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Father, we thank you for this time that we have 
We thank You for the beauty of the Gospel that indeed washes us clean, reconciles us to one another, brings us towards Yourself. We pray, Lord God, that right now You would move by Your power, be at work in Your love, draw us near to Yourself, that we would be a people who would pour out ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing for You. We pray this for our good. We pray this for the good of this city. We pray this for the glory of Your Name. And it's in the precious Name of Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen, Amen. City on a Hill, why don't you go and grab a seat? Great to be with you. Uh, it's winter. Who loves this time of year? Well, a lot of hands. Wasn't expecting that. Who's counting down the days to summer already? Few people as well. Wonderful for you guys to be here. Love you. Uh, my name's Guy. Joy and privilege to serve as the pastor. Uh, a special good day to those who are joining with us online, and a very big. Shout out to all of our gospel community leaders who are having a wonderful weekend away in Phillip Island. And they're joining with us now, thanks to technology. Can we thank the Lord for these guys? We love and appreciate you guys so very much and uh, all that you do for our church in opening up your homes, opening up the Bible, helping us gather together around Jesus. Uh, well, today uh, marks a new chapter. Uh, at Easter, we began the rebuild. And as part of this, we were exploring the book of Ezra and this unique moment in salvation history where God delivers Israel uh, out of Babylon. And he, and he brings them back to their city, and they, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And they come in waves to help establish their life and worship around him. In the opening chapter, the king of Persia announces freedom for God's people. And we watch the first exiles return. Then in chapters two to seven, uh, we track with them as they get the cement mixer out, roll up their sleeves and start to rebuild the temple. Then in the closing chapters, Ezra himself comes to Jerusalem where he comes proclaiming God's word and uniting God's people around the promises of God. And in all of this, uh, there has been so much to celebrate. The city is taking shape and the people of God have come a long way. But as the credits roll, on the book of Ezra, we can't help but acknowledge that the rebuild is far from finished. The temple is standing, but the city itself is still in ruins. In other words, God's people, they've come so far and yet there is so much more for them to see and so much more for them to do. And in this, in this, I see a very timely message for us all. Uh, our story as a church began almost 15 years ago, right? A small group Bible study meeting in a city apartment uh, with a big vision, a vision that, that, that people in our city, the city of Melbourne would come to know the beauty, the truth and the relevance of Jesus. And we're praying in that apartment that God would move in power and love. And since then, we have seen God do immeasurably more than we could ever think or imagine. Uh, we saw people step out in faith and courage and love serving our city. We saw leaders raised up, relationships formed, communities established. We've seen new churches planted. We've entered the waters of baptism with hundreds of men and women celebrating the new life that is ours in Christ. But as far as we've come, I hope you know that this story, God's story, is far from finished. There is more that God wants for us. There is more that He wants us to discover. There is more that He wants us to see. And indeed, there is more that He wants us to do. And so as we step into this next chapter, I find myself asking, what will this next season require of me? What will this next season require from us? What is God calling us to hear? And what does God want us to build? 
If you have a Bible handy, I'd love you to come with me to the book of Nehemiah as we kick off this new season. So beginning in verse one, we read the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now you would have heard in our reading that Nehemiah lives in Susa, which is a great uh, city in the Persian empire. And we're told in verse 11 that he served as the, what? The cupbearer to the king. Does anyone know what the cupbearer of the king does? He tastes, that's right, Richard, he tastes the king's wine. That's his job, drinking the king's wine. By show of hands, who would take that job in a heartbeat? Right, no boring uh, emails, no boring meetings, just stroll in probably, I don't know, about noon, grazing plate for the king, royal hammock, fine wine. Sounds decent, but it did come with its dangers. Uh, the king had his enemies and it was not uncommon for people to want to poison the cup. And so the cupbearer to the king had to taste the wine to see if it was safe. In other words, he served in a position of great sacrifice and, and service. It's like, uh, what is it, Kevin Costner in, in The Body Card? <laughs> Throwback to the 80s, anyone? Right? He's there to serve the king. In addition, it's worth noting that Nehemiah is not your typical religious figure. He's not your typical religious leader. He's not a scribe or a priest that works in the temple. Nehemiah is an ordinary guy working a secular job for a pagan king. And I highlight that because sometimes there is an assumption among Christians that God only works through those who have religious professions. Right? If you want to be used by God, go to Bible college, get that religious training, get ordained, work in a church or some Christian organization. Now, clearly, I'm not against that. <laughs> uh, we need more men and women who want to put up their hands, go to Bible college and search and serve in, in churches and, and parachurch organizations. Right? So I'm not against that, but I want, I want us to recognize that God's purpose is never limited to any one type of profession or any one type of ministry context. You know that, right? Most of us here today are working in secular environments. Most of us, a bit like Nehemiah, have bosses who, who hold a very different worldview. Most of us have work colleagues who come Friday night drinks, have behaviours that might be at odds with your Christian faith. And perhaps like Nehemiah, you might be doing work every day that you look at and say, ah, it doesn't feel that spiritual. But this is where Nehemiah is so helpful. Not only does Nehemiah give us clues as to what faithfulness in our work looks like, but he shows that when it comes to the purpose of God and being part of something bigger, God can and God does raise up people in all vocations and circumstances. Look then to verse two. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Why is Nehemiah asking about Jerusalem, right? Which is some city, I don't know, 1,400 kilometers away. Why is he asking about Jerusalem? Well, of course, Jerusalem is the heartland for God's people, Israel. All the way back in Genesis, we see God calling Abraham, establishing him, setting him apart, giving him a promise that he would establish a nation, a great people who would be a, a blessing, a light, a, a city on a hill. And we see that promise at work in Moses who leads God's people through the Red Sea. We see that promise at work in Joshua who crosses the river Jordan and enters the land of promise. We see that promise at work in, in David who brings down Goliath and establishes Jerusalem as God's city. 
And we see that promise at work in Solomon, David's son, who who establishes a magnificent temple so that God's people could come in thanksgiving and worship. But sadly, the witness of Scripture and, and human history reveal that as the years went on and different kings took the throne, political and religious division began to emerge. People start abandoning God. Cracks start to show and the city itself became weak. Uh, In the 6th century BC, the Babylonians destroy the city. The temple is destroyed. The, The walls are brought down and God's people are exiled into captivity. And yet, as we've seen throughout the book of Ezra, the good news of God is that he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on his promise. He doesn't give up on his people. Even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. Even in the midst of their sin, he stretches out his hand to save. And so the Lord raises up that Persian king and the Lord heralds freedom for God's people. And the Lord makes a way for them to leave Babylon and come home. And so here's Nehemiah, some 141 years since the Babylonians destroyed their city, some 70 years after the temple was rebuilt, and he is inquiring about the people. He wants to know, how are the men and women in Jerusalem going? How are they going? But what does he hear? Let's listen in. Verse three, he hears the remnant in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. So just imagine a moment for a moment, you're one of the men and women who came back to Jerusalem. You came back in the hope of a better life. You told your children, the best is yet to come. You're working hard. You're trying to put food on the table. You're trying to establish a life for yourself in in the city of God. And yet day after day, month after month, year after year, you're surrounded by rubble. The temple is standing. But the city, its walls are in ruins. A city without walls is like a soldier without armor. It's like walking through a dark alley at night by yourself. They're exposed. They're vulnerable. And they walk in shame. Why shame? Well, here are the people of God. The people who God had promised to bless. God had promised to prosper them. God had said, you will be a great nation, a blessing to all. You'll stand as a city on a hill. And yet in this moment, for years, in fact, they've been in ruin. Now, suppose you're Nehemiah. You're in Susa. You hear this report. What do you do with the information? How would you respond? Nehemiah could have denied it, couldn't he? He could have rejected what he heard as fake news or maybe just minimized it, minimized their grief, telling his brother, it can't be that bad. You know, one of the things we tend to do when we hear other people's pain is compare. We say, well, it could be worse. Or, well, at least it's not as bad as what is happening over there. Uh, Brene Brown says, empathy rarely starts with the phrase, at least. I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John is getting kicked out of school. At least Jane is an A student. 
Nehemiah could have minimized their grief. He could also have responded, couldn't he, with indifference and apathy. Apathy is not the denial of reality, but the decision to do nothing about it. So I'm the father of uh, four kids. And when they were young, uh, there were loads of nappies uh, to change. Uh, Any parents at the nappy stage? Right, a lot of hands around. I discovered an unspoken rule amongst parents at the time. Whoever smells the nappy first is responsible for changing that nappy. That's the law. And yet I uh, came to realize it's actually easily exploited. You know, I'm on the couch watching a game of footy. Uh, One of my boys, two years old, playing Lego on the floor. I don't want to embarrass him, uh, but for the sake of the story, let's call him Jack. Uh, (laughs) All of a sudden, this deathly and depraved odor comes my way and smacks me in the face. I mean, you could wipe out a small country with this thing. It's so strong and he knows it. And I know it, but I'm watching the footy. It's the final quarter. It's a close game. I like my couch. And so what do I do? What does every good parent do? I pretend as if I've smelt nothing. Five minutes later, my wife, Vanessa, walks in the room. She almost passes out, scoops up my boy and says, did you smell this? (laughs) Like smell what? Um, That scenario and variations like it, I think happen all the time in life. Every day we're confronted with mess. Mess in your workplace, the university, family, the gospel community, the church, right? There's mess and we see the need, we smell the need. And yet instead of doing something, sometimes we just block our nose and wait for someone else. Nehemiah, let's remember, is living in one of the most prosperous cities. City of Susa is at the top of the world. And he is the cupbearer to the king. He has access, he has influence, he's got a great paycheck, great trajectory, great comforts, the best wine. I mean, if anyone was tempted in his heart to say, ugh, like to help, but it's him. But that's not what he did. You know what else Nehemiah didn't do? (laughs) Nehemiah didn't fall in a heap of hopelessness. Right? He could have said, guys, I, I appreciate you telling me what's happening. And you've told me about the walls and the gates are burned and people are in trouble and, and shame. And, and I get it. I really, really do. It's bad. It's really, it's not how it should be. And I'd love to do something about it. But can we be honest? This city, it's been like this for 141 years. Nothing's going to change. It's always been like that. And it's always going to be like that. I'd love to see change. But it's not going to happen. Have you ever found yourself saying that? Ever felt overwhelmed by the enormity of the challenge and just thrown up your hands in despair? You know, perhaps you're moved by the broken walls that you see in the church today. The ongoing challenges of church division, mishandling of scripture, weak theology, false teaching, the lack of prayer, the lack of commitment. Uh, Perhaps you're grieved by leaders who have acted poorly and compromised their faith. Perhaps you're broken by other Christians who appear lukewarm and they're unmoved in their worship. Perhaps you're frustrated by the worldly consumerism that so easily takes a grip in the church. The harvest is plentiful, but you know the workers are few. Perhaps you are burdened by the many lost people in our city. The many people who right now don't know Jesus. Like 90% of Melbourne's population are not 
part of a worshipping community. Suggests to me that something like 90% right now don't have a saving relationship with Christ. They have jobs, they have homes, but they're standing on the precipice of eternity without union with Christ. And we can know this, but of course, knowing this and then doing something about it are always very, very different. So they, we can deny news. We can be apathetic toward it. We can just throw up our hands in despair. What about Nehemiah? How does he respond to the news of God's people and the broken walls? Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Does Nehemiah stand at a distance? Does he shrink back in hopelessness? No, he enters in. He allows the suffering, the brokenness of his people to impact it, not just to know it, but indeed to feel it. And I find great comfort in the tears of Nehemiah. Many of us grew up, didn't we, being told that tears were a sign of weakness. Don't cry, be a man. Ever heard that? There are moments in life that you probably shouldn't cry. Come last in your work footy tipping comp. Don't cry. You go out for coffee and you forget your phone. Had to sit there, no screen, no laptop. Just drinking your coffee like a psychopath. (laughs) Don't cry. You rocked up to Hoyts thinking you're coming to watch Top Gun. You landed here. Please don't cry. But there are moments in life where we should allow the realities of this world, the brokenness that we see to grip us, to move us. We've got to feel things. Uh, early this year, Ness and I went out to the, to the movies with our good mates, uh, Andy and Steph Judd, and we went and saw, uh, what was that movie? West Side Story. Anyone seen West Side Story? Oh my, like 60, first 60 minutes, it's just dudes dancing in the street. I'm like, oh, this is not my kind of movie. <laughs> but then, first time I've ever seen this, then that the themes start coming together. The plot thickens and the themes of, uh, of loss and love clash and, and death and violence and tragedy and betrayal. Like they're all still singing and dancing, but I'm a, I'm a mess. <laughs> you know, tears are coming out and, and Ness leans in and she puts a hand on my leg. I'm like, don't worry, it's just one of my contacts have come loose. We shouldn't be embarrassed about these things, should we? In fact, I think we should welcome tears. Jesus, fully man, fully God. And Jesus wept. He wept over the death of his best mate. He wept over a people who'd forsaken God. He wept over sin and the forsakenness of humanity and our foolishness to run away from God. Jesus, he wept. Now, did Jesus know that God was in control? Absolutely. Was Jesus confident that God works all things together for those who love him? Yes, he knew it. If you're in Christ, take heart. A day is coming where all the brokenness that we see and experience will be made good and God will wipe away every tear. We know that that is coming. But until that day, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who 
mourn. And so let me ask you, when was the last time that you wept like Nehemiah? When was the last time you looked at the needs of this world and God's people and it moved you to tears? When you saw your brother or sister in Christ give in to sin, did you weep? When you saw Satan wreak havoc on God's people, fracturing relationships, swirling up gossip and envy and lies, did you weep? When you watched your own soul drift, did you weep? Nehemiah wept. He wept for days. And you know what else? Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah prays. He doesn't hold on to his trouble. He hands it over to his father in heaven. Look to verse five. Oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah's prayer starts as all prayers should start. He starts in adoration. Think about that. It's one thing to praise God when things in your life are going well. How wonderful it is when God's people worship God when the walls of our life are down. When you get that call that turns everything upside down, when disaster strikes, that is when your worship truly matters. That is when your faith is tested. Nehemiah starts in adoration. And and, and check out the vision that Nehemiah has for God. He says he is the great and awesome God, right? He's sovereign. God is righteous. Do you know this? God is not limited. He's not boxed in by our constraints. He is not subservient to anything or anyone. He is the great and awesome God. Imagine if you lived your life with a big vision, a true vision of who God is. Oh, how we struggle to see God for who God is. Nehemiah sees him and that is so vital for us. I, you know, some of you know, I, I, I didn't grow up a Christian and I, and I grew, up, grew up in a family that was quite dysfunctional. There's a lot of broken pieces, a lot of broken walls at home. And, 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 and I think in the midst of that, I, I, I felt this, this need to kind of step in and, 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 and rescue the situation. I felt this impulse, this need to, be, to, to provide peace to provide comfort, to provide a bit of hope. And, 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 and even today, there's that same impulse in me that wants to kind of seize a broken situation, just wants to throw myself all in, right? And yet sometimes I can do that and other people can do that in their own strength. Right? Anyone relate to that? You see, like some people, as I said already, like they hold back, they don't do anything. Other people throw themselves forward to try and help the situation, but they do it in their own strength. Nehemiah, he does want to do something about the broken walls. He is willing to put up his hand and get involved, but he prays because he knows that by himself, he has nothing. If you just run on your own energy, man, you're gonna burn out, flame out. You'll be exhausted. You'll become bitter. Nehemiah needs God. You and me, we need God. He's great. He's awesome. And he's not just powerful sitting on a hill. Hear this. He is loving. Imagine if God was all powerful, but not loving. They're all loving, but not powerful. God is all powerful and all loving. Check it out. Verse five, he is the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. You know that when God says to you, I love you, he means it. 
He means it. He keeps it. It's steadfast. Nothing can come in the way of that. I love this quote by Australian author. I actually works at, at Ridley College. Nice plug, Andy Judd. Mike Bird says this. There are no jaws of life, no pliers, no chainsaw, no firewall that can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's love sticks to us like a post-it note made from heavenly glue, like divine bubblegum that it was predestined to be mashed into our hair or like a teenage girl holding on to tickets from a One Direction concert. God's love is like Himself, constant, unchanging, immovable and faithful. How many of you know that's good news? Right? And it's God's, it's God's power at work in our world and God's love for His people that now brings Nehemiah to that posture of repentance. Verse six, God, hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, as far as we know, Nehemiah himself lived a pretty decent, honest life. And yet before God, he doesn't distance himself from Israel or look down on them in condemnation. No, in an act of courage, sacrifice and love, Nehemiah steps in on their behalf and behalf of their forefathers and he takes responsibility. On hearing of the ongoing destruction in Jerusalem, he takes responsibility for Israel's disobedience. He takes responsibility for Israel's idolatry and sin. And I'm reading this, and I hope you're reading this, because when I'm reading this, man, I'm, I'm like, I'm inspired by that and incredibly challenged. You know, when I think of broken walls among the body of Christ, I think about church division. I think about Christians acting in terrible ways towards each other. I think about betrayal of truth, the compromise of God's word. I think of decades of abuse and the conveyor belt of pain, hurt, and shame. And it is tempting in my heart and tempting for us all to point the finger at the sins of others. We point to the sins of our forefathers. We stand at a distance from the past, believing we are good and they, they are bad. They are the ones who got us into this place. But here in the prayer of Nehemiah, I am reminded that the church at all times, in all places is one. When we rise, we rise together. And when we fall, we fall together. So please listen in. If you are here today or you're with us online and you've been wounded by other believers, if you've suffered in church community, if you felt the sting of hypocrisy, you know, whether that happened here or by a Christian parent or Christian teacher or another Christian community, I'm sorry. We are sorry. And we, as the body of Christ, repent. We repent for the sin of deceit and false teaching. We repent for the sin of gossip and greed. We repent of pride the misuse of power and the tyranny of violence that has plagued believers for generations. We repent of our lack of compassion and hardness of heart. We repent of our lust and our many misplaced loves. We repent of the many times we have forsaken God and worshipped idols made with our own hands. We repent of the times we have looked down on other brothers and sisters in Christ and spoken of the church with disdain. We repent 
of our selfishness and self-centeredness. Instead of pouring out our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, we have betrayed our first love and served ourselves. And we repent personally and publicly knowing that our sin compromises God's people and fractures God's good design. We repent knowing we were made for so much more. And we repent trusting that the steadfast love of God endures and his mercy is new every day. Look then to verse eight. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're faithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is appealing to God's word. He knows that unlike our words, which fail, God's word never returns empty. And despite the exile, despite the scattering of God's people, He knows that God wants to gather his people and make his name dwell. God is committed to that. He's committed to restoring relationships. He's committed to redeeming communities. He's committed to rebuilding life in the church. And what is at the heart of that renewal is a desire for his name to dwell. Not the name of Nehemiah, not our name, Not your name, not my name, but the name that is above every name. That's the purpose of God. That's the passion of this church. We exist individually and collectively as a community of faith that the name of Jesus would be high and lifted up. We had our most recent uh, newcomers night. 29 people came, different parts of the city, from different places around the world. Uh, all God is gathering together. And I was really encouraged by one bloke who stood up to share that he says, I'm not a Christian. I'm here on a bit of a spiritual search. I really want to have a, a personal encounter with Jesus. And I was talking to my mates at work about this. And they said to him, you should go to City on a Hill. Now, I don't know who his mates are, whether they're Christian or not. But how wonderful to know that God's hand of grace is at work, drawing his people to himself. That's who we are. That's the kind of city that God is building. That's why we do what we do. Our Sunday gatherings, our ministry to kids, our ministry to the poor, it exists to what? Know Jesus and make Jesus known. That's who we are. Finally, Nehemiah ends his prayer with these words. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Um, Christians often cringe at the word success. (laughs) And I think that's because sex is a success. Whoa, (laughs) that escalated quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I think we cringe at the word success because it's so often tainted, isn't it, by worldly imagery and idolatry. But the desire for success is not wrong. It's biblical. As Christians, we like Nehemiah should desire and pray for success. But the question here is, who or what are you succeeding in? Who or what are you living for? Are you living for the world, eager to win the status and the approval of others? Or are you hungry for God and His glory? Nehemiah wants to see God's kingdom succeed. He wants to see God's church flourish. He wants to see God's people restored and God's city rebuilt. And in the midst of this, do you see how he sees himself? He has a huge vision of God, but notice the word when he talks of himself, he says, give success to your servant. Eight times in this prayer, three times in the closing section, he refers to himself and the people of God as servants. 
And you want to underscore that because Nehemiah for a lot of people is like this classic Old Testament book that they like to box as a leadership book. Right, I've, pre- I've preached at conferences and talked about the leadership of Nehemiah. And we're gonna see lots of great things and how he starts up this ministry and raises financial support and builds a team and handles opposition and keeps on leading. Like, it's wonderful. But one of the things we need to appreciate, which is so often forgotten, is that leadership in the Bible is almost always synonymous with servanthood. It's not a posture of, you know, puffed out chest and cape flying in the wind. It's Nehemiah on his knees with tears in his eyes, grief in his heart, hands open, prayer. I'm a servant, right? I'm a servant. And in this, can't we see how Nehemiah is pointing us to the true and perfect cupbearer? You know, when Jesus was teaching his disciples about leadership, what did he do? He got down on his knees and cleaned their feet. He says, go and and do likewise. And then think about the love that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. As his face turns towards the cross, he says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Now, Jesus knew what the cup meant. He knew the death he would face, the wrath he would drink. And yet as the true, better and perfect cup bearer, Jesus drank it and he drank that cup in full. He drank your sin and the judgment that we deserve so that you can now drink the full blessing and life and love of God. Jesus loves you. And it is that great love that not only reconciles us now back to God, it compels us to now love and serve others. In the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah saw the need. He saw the trouble. He saw the broken walls and it moved him. It compelled him. And maybe you feel that same call. I said at the top of my sermon that under God, Much has been accomplished here at City on a Hill. We have so much to thank the Lord for. But I hope and pray that you know that our work is not yet complete. In many ways, it feels like we're just getting started. What does this season require of you? How can you now play your part? Maybe you want to see the poor of our cities served and justice flow through the streets like a river. Maybe you want to play your part in building community marked by genuine love and authenticity. Maybe you burn with a heart for the lost and you long to see thousands in our city go from death to life. Where does that start? For Nehemiah and for us, it starts in prayer. As the band comes up, let me say this. Servants don't sit back in indifference, nor do they charge forward in their own strength. They pray. We pray. We pray for our families. We pray for our workplaces. We pray for our universities. We pray for our church. This week, I'm praying for our gospel communities, praying God builds deep relationships, praying for our leaders praying that we would have communities coming together around God's word. This week, I'm praying for our gospel gatherings and the call before us all to serve. Uh, The opportunities and needs we heard about earlier are not insignificant. They're vital. And I'm praying God stirs our hearts and calls us now to respond. This week, I'm praying for the launch of our evening service. Praying God can gather people together, open doors that the gospel might go out. This week, I'm praying for the ministry to our poor in this city. As the nights get colder and the ground gets wetter, I'm praying that we'd have an army of people there serving with warmth and love. And this week, I'm praying for the lost of our city. Praying. God brings renewal and life. 
And why do we pray? We pray because we, like Nehemiah, know that God not only hears our prayers, but is powerful to save. Do you know that? Do you believe that? I got a beautiful, encouraging email this week. Can I share this with you as we finish? Uh, It came from a woman and her family who live in Alice Springs. Uh, They were visiting Melbourne and uh, attended uh, one of the Melbourne services. And after the sermon, as we do each week, there's an invitation for prayer and she came forward for prayer. She says, I was eight weeks pregnant, bleeding and worried. Heavy bleeding had started Saturday early morning, ended up in emergency and then later sent home to rest. Not much could be done as it was classified as a threatened miscarriage. It was left up to God. Spent most of Saturday in bed praying and on Sunday morning came to church. A beautiful lady who was part of your team, unfortunately, I can't remember her name, stepped up and prayed for us when we told her our story. She then says, that very day, the bleeding stopped. Fast forwarding things, on the 15th of October, 2021, we welcomed a healthy baby boy who we named Lucas. He is seven months now. We had been praying for a child for five years and we'll never forget that Sunday when someone from your team stood with us in prayer. All praise to Jesus for answered prayers. Isn't God the best? You know, prayer doesn't always play out like the way uh, we'd like, but could we just allow ourselves a moment to trust and believe that the arms of the Lord are not too short to save? How does God respond? <laughs> to the prayer of Nehemiah. You have to come back next week to find out. But until then, let's uh, stand as we pray. Father in heaven, you are worthy of all glory and honour. We thank you for your faithfulness and steadfast love. We confess that we have fallen short. This week, We've done things we should not do and failed to do things we ought to have done. We thank you that when we are unfaithful, you remain faithful. And so right now, would you restore us, remind us of the mercy that has transformed us and help us as your people to stand as a light, as a city on a hill. We need you. Be at work, we pray for our good and your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.